Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain sensing device, Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio, with hundreds of guided meditations and over 50 amazing teachers, and Muse, which provides great feedback on your practice, are two awesome tools you'll want to have in your back pocket. Now, here's Ariel for this week's episode. My name is Ariel Garten, and today I'm going to take you inside the head of someone extraordinarily fascinating. His name is Dr. James Fallon, and he's a neuroscientist. He's a professor of psychiatry and an emeritus professor of anatomy and neurobiology at the University of California, Irvine. He also has the neurological and genetic traits of a psychopath. And from him, we'll learn some surprising lessons on how to be even better humans ourselves. Let's go inside the head of Dr. Jim Fallon. So let's begin at the beginning with the context behind what makes you a little bit different than other people. I mean, from the biological markers, I am. Uh, but if you, I think if you met me, which I have and can attest, you are an amazing, gregarious, wonderful man. Yes. You'd say, you know, usually people's response is like a regular guy. And I've always felt like a regular guy. You know, I still have my, my Teamsters card. I was a bartender and a truck driver, a laborer, did all those things and enjoyed them. And I also taught all the, well, almost every grade and they, and they still do. And in medical school. So I, uh, meeting people, when we go out, people think I'm like a, and if they don't know me, they'll say, well, he's kind of like a, like a smart truck driver or bartender. I said, well, hey, that's true. That's what I am. <laughs> Who just happens to be a, you know, emeritus neuroscience professor. Well, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, that's another sort of life. Uh, that's just purely cognitive, you know, and uh, it's not like regular life. So that, so there's a large part of me which is very regular. Uh, you do have that with people with psychopathic traits, right? Like I do. I have, a, you know, I'm really right on the borderline of being a full psychopath. I, you know, I score usually the mid high twenties and the hair test and the equivalent and the PPI. The, psychopathic personality inventory and but I don't have any negative uh I have almost all the positive symptom traits and and very few of the negative ones no criminality I have no desire to hurt people I do which I didn't know but I do because I you know mani manipulate people but for me it's just a game like a cat with a mouse and um but that's stuff I just found out, you know, recently yeah. <laughs> over the you know, past few years. Let's, let's move the audience forward and let's tell them the story of how you discovered that you were a psychopath. That you had this, you had psychopathic neurobiology. I had been studying, you know, we did a lot of studies, PET scans, fMRI, genetic studies on schizophrenia, addictions, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, a lot of psychiatric and neurological disorders. Putting these together in a mathematical or statistical format, uh, 
starting about 1999, we really were the, I think, the first ones, our consortium, to do individual and personalized medicine uh, for psychiatry. We, I'm pretty sure we had the first uh, group who did that. And, and so we were looking for that because we were trying to find ways mostly to find out, to really characterize people with different kinds of schizophrenia, different kinds of bipolar, different kinds of Alzheimer's uh, or different kinds of dementia. And because there's all of these disorders and diseases are on spectrum. Um, I started doing brain imaging analysis when they got a PET scanner, positron emission tomography scanner, and we had a good one, a really high resolution one. But one small part of that was testing murderers. Uh, these were serial killers, like really bad murders. And it was usually during the penalty phase of their trial that they came in to get a PET scan because at that point they wanted to say, you know, show that the devil made them do it, that it was some organic <laughs> disorder, not their My brain choice. made me do it. Yeah, exactly. At that point, I got a lot of scans of murders uh, from, and from different people using different modalities, you know, the PET scans, fMRI, spec scans. And so I told them, well, I said, just don't tell me what I'm looking at, you know, mix, mix up the population with normal people schizophrenics, et cetera, to confuse me. So I don't know they're murdered. I don't know what they're. And after I did this, I was, you know, really surprised because nobody had really come up with a unifying scheme for a psychopath. Now, of course, not all uh, murderers are psychopaths, but of those people with psychiatric disorders, they form the highest percentage of murderers. There are also impulsive murders. There are disorganized ones. There are people who had fetal alcohol syndrome, you know, their mother was a drug addict or an alcoholic. And, and they, they, you know, some of those people murdered some people with schizoaffective disorder, which is in the schizoaffective. That's what some shamans have. You know, they, there's always somebody in a population, a clan or a tribe that schizoaffective. And they're usually the ones that are made shaman. Because uh, <laughs> they can hear things. They hear things and see things. Sometimes they're right. You know, so it's <laughs> and they tell good stories. So they're good to have around the campfire at night. So they're. And, and so at any rate, at that point, I, uh, you know, it was something new because nobody had ever come up with this idea of the overall pattern, the fundamental pattern for a psychopath. And so my work uh, did that. What did you see? What was the pattern that you saw in the brains? Well, the pattern is that the uh, in, in, in the functional brain scans, you see reduced activity uh, when you show somebody something that should get them really uh, upset, for example, very highly emotionally charged things. It could be a, it could be a bus full of, you know, children burning or some really awful stuff or people decapitated. You, and, you know, and a normal person sees that, certain areas of the brain really fire up. The amygdala, this whole limbic system, the cortical limbic system. It, and it turns out that all the psychopaths, that was turned off, that whole system. So I said, I know what the system is. It's like a basic Cortical limbic system is turned off in these people, and I wrote about it. So that was, I think, the first description of this in any literature. And so that pattern in 2005, 2006, um, I was vetting in different psychiatry departments, psychology departments, law schools, you name it. And at the same time, we were doing our real work, which is we were trying to find the genes, the forms of genes, the genetic alleles that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we found it. We ended up I'll just cut to the chase. We found it in this study. It's called Tom 40, T-O-M-M 40. So 
we were at the end of the experiment and we had all of our Alzheimer's patients done. We just didn't have enough controls. And so instead of recruiting people, which could have taken, you know, maybe a month or two, I said, look, I'll get my family. I mean, what a, it was uh, not a, the greatest idea to do the PET scan for it, have their gene analysis done and the psychometrics done uh, with the idea that none of us had Alzheimer's or so good controls. But my wife's family had a lot of Alzheimer's. So she was at risk to take this. But she said, the hell with it. Well, let's do it. And, and she said the reason she agreed to it is because some years before, about six years before, she she got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, had a tremendous size tumor all through her abdomen, her chest, or into her arms and legs. It was enormous. Mm -hmm. And we were really, really quite uh, uh, concerned about that. But the good news there is she had it treated. She did all the right things. She was a good patient. And she beat it, and it has not come back. But at the time, uh, we didn't know. And she just said, look, let's find out if I've got the genes and the early brain changes of Alzheimer's. And so uh, so we did this. And at the same time, I had finished up the scans of the murder. So they're completely separate studies. And I had the pile of these murderer scans on my desk. The two technicians came into my office and they said, we, we got your family's Alzheimer's scans done. So by looking at these, I've seen so many over the years of these PET scans and fMRIs that I can quickly tell if something's grossly abnormal. Uh, and they all look normal. So I was like so relieved. And then I got to that last- No Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah, that's a big deal. So yeah, it was, it was a big deal because none of them looked like they had Alzheimer's. And when the genetics came back sometime later, it was the same thing. It was no big deal there either. Then I got to the bottom, the last scan in this pile of my family's Alzheimer's scans. And I looked at it and I, I, and I started laughing. I said, okay, guys, to the technicians, I said, you, you took one of the murderers, right? You took one of the psychopaths uh, out of the machine and you printed it out. And now you tell me it's, it, it's somebody in my family. And they go, no, 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 no. It's really just part of your family. I said, this is somebody that should be locked up probably, you know, as a danger to society. And so- Based on uh, how the brain looked. So at that point, I had to take the name off because I, I never know who I'm looking at. They're always covered with tape. So I took the tape off and boom, there it was, was uh, my name. So that's how I found out that something might be wrong. But my first thought was, uh, I know who I am and in, my theory must be wrong. These areas that I thought were involved are probably not involved. My theory is wrong because I'm okay. Never thought I was a psychopath. You know, it's like, okay, a neuroscientist studying psychopathic killers and finds out he's got the brain pattern. And then later the genetics, I mean, really quite quirky and serendipitous of, of a psychopath. And so the joke was on me, but I seriously did not even, I, I didn't give it a second thought. But it was years later uh, when I was, uh, I was asked to give a talk in Norway. It was like 2009. This was several years after finding these scans. And at the end of that talk where I talked about how we determine the genes involved with different disorders, right? PET scan, genetics, mathematical model. Uh, the, the guy stood up and it turned out to be the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oslo. And he goes, well, you know, thanks for that talk. That was nice. And so uh, two things to tell you. First of all, you, you yourself have bipolar disorder and you don't know it. You're really probably a borderline psychopath, too. He said, you're hypomanic, so you, you qualify for bipolar. He said, you're not you don't get depressed. But bipolar is not defined by the depression. It's defined by the mania or hypomania. 
and but secondly, they said you probably you probably are a borderline psychopath as well. That's what. Okay, the that's time, when the penny drops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the first time I ever took it, it seriously at all. You know, this whole issue. So when I went back, I started ask. I asked my wife. I said, "Look, I'm not going to get mad. Tell me what you really, really think of me." Now I've known her a long, long time. We're going to have our 50th wedding anniversary, in, in, you know, next month. So we've actually been dating for about, you know, like 60 years or something. Amazing. So this woman knows you. And so we, she really knows me. It's, it's hard to pull anything over on her at all. So this doesn't fit a psychopath pattern. Psychopaths aren't married 50 years and going out with the same girl for that. They just don't do it. So it didn't look like, you know, it's not one of the things. And I've also had the same job. I always knew I wanted to be a scientist from the time I was a kid. And I've been, you know, really successful uh, in, in a straight line through all my training. And I've had a, a wonderful career, a completely enjoyable, successful career as a scientist. So this idea of having a, a very steady, productive uh, career and never been arrested, uh, you know, um, and, and, and with the same woman, I got kids and grandkids and and kind of happy family guy. So this is not, doesn't sound like psychopathy, but I went around asking everybody, my wife and then my brothers and my sister and, you know, my friends. And I have a lot of friends who are psychologists, especially psychiatrists, but they all said, well, oh, you're a great guy. You're great to hang out with, but but you do psychopathic things that are not right. They're just, they all said the same thing. I said, what? I said, what are you talking about? And also, why didn't anybody tell you until until now? Yeah, well, why? Well, you know, it's always, oh, Jim, you're crazy. And they said, no, we didn't say you're crazy. You're not crazy. You do psychopathic things. Then I had to ask the psychiatrists I know well, who've known me for years. And I asked them the same thing. And they said, oh, you definitely. So we've been telling you for years, you do psychopathic things. You get a lot of psychopathic traits. And I said, you, you, you've told me this? They said, yeah, but. You never put it together, which I never did. You know, you, you hear these things separately. Uh, you know, it's a banquet, you know, but they all get blended together. But once, you know, I heard all of it, they all said the same thing. Except my mother. She said, no, you've always been a nice boy. <laughs> but then, you know, she'd lived to be, she just died last year. She'd lived to 102. Wow. And in the past few years, she said, well, I got to tell you really what I think of you. And so <laughs> once the frontal said, lobe starts to thin a little bit and the inhibition wheedles away, well, it was quite, the truth comes out. Said, after all this was, you know, had been through the cleaner, uh, she finally said, when you were going into puberty, we were really concerned about you for a number of things. Uh, you got very, you get very dark. And you know, it was always starting when I was about 10 or 11, 12. There was always an adult. And it happens to this day. Some adult who was a teacher, a professor, a priest, a rabbi, somebody, a psychologist who said there's something really wrong with you. We you can't put the finger on it, but there's something really evil about you. And I always heard this and just laughed it off. But I, I to this day, I get the same thing. And people can never put their finger on it. And so that was always in the background, and I never paid any attention. I absolutely laughed it off. But one, one psychiatrist, he said, you've heard all of this stuff. You've been tested and everything. How do you feel? I said, I don't give a shit. He goes, that's the problem. You really, truly don't care. And so that was the... I guess the denouement of all of that is like you have all these traits and consistently shown those traits. Anybody who knows anything about psychology and psychiatry all agree that I have this, but I'm not a categorical 
clinical psychopath. I just am short of that. So I'm like one of these borderline guys, like Bill Clinton, or you know, is is is, is a, the greatest case of the the borderline um, the psychopath. It's got all positive traits, and you know, there's a whole group of these two groups of traits, positive and negative, in both the hair psychopathy system and and the in the PPI. The Hold on, how is how is Bill Clinton a psychopath? I haven't heard this theory. Oh, he does everything. Everything, you know, it's all this sweet talking, manipulation. He doesn't even think it's wrong. He's not, you know, he really, it's like, who, that, that isn't wrong. Everybody knows around him what he does, a complete scoundrel. And yet he's like, well, that's not wrong. And he means it. And it's like, and that's, it's what psychopaths do. And, and they, they're just always on the make, always constantly manipulating um, and manipulating people all the time. And they, oh, they're very smooth, glib talkers. I mean, it's him. He's like the best example. Uh, the, the other really good example historically is Casanova. And Casanova was the probably the greatest pro-social psychopath of all time. I mean, I've read his three books, his three volumes. It was like 2,500 pages. It's mind-numbing. But all the stuff he does, he doesn't kill people. He doesn't rape them. But he's always seducing everybody. He's, he's a scoundrel. And that's what Bill Clinton is. I mean, he's the closest thing we have. Now, the other people, leaders that have uh, very high in psychopathic traits were uh, JFK, LBJ. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was very high uh, with it. Uh, people who, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton was very, very high. And uh, uh, young uh, George Bush Jr. was below Bill Clinton. But George, George Bush Sr. had, from what people can tell, had no psychopathic traits. Uh, and, and neither did, like Jimmy Carter. So there's this a whole study done of the biography, biographers and all the traits of um, the president. So they had them all ranked. But if you, if you really look at it. I just had to ask it, out of sheer curiosity, did you vote for Clinton? Do you vote for psychopaths? Is this somebody that you well, want running no, your you country? Know, I, gave, yes or no? I gave a talk right before the 2016 election, and it was at an international financial group. And I asked, they asked me to do their annual talk. You know, it was like the 30 members of the board and the chairman of the board was a very famous senator, well known today. And I, and I, and they wanted to know kind of the how to formulate personality types. Uh, uh, of people. And so I did it for all the presidential candidates at the time. And then I compared it to the distribution of these different traits in the population, like in Western population. Uh, and this includes types of empathy, et cetera, and how people react when they're under any strain, uh, for economic strain or war, et cetera. So in that talk, and this was like in, I was in July or something of 2016. And I think Trump was down by like 20 or 25 points, but I based it on the traits uh, that the people who knew the, everybody, all the candidates had. And um, I said, based on this and based on the economy right now and the people, I said, Trump's got to win. And this person, the senator who, who and I don't want to say his name because it, it'll, you know, it'll embarrass him. Not that he cares what I said, but he came up afterwards. He says, now I know why I always vote for jerks. He's stronger <laughs> than that, but he, and he, so he loved it. And and it was, you know, and when Trump was elected, of course, these people on the board all called me and said, how did you know that? I said, we well, just know the personality distribution and, and what happens under stressful times, what people will do. I didn't vote for Trump. I, you know, 
for the whole year, I told everybody, I said, you don't want to vote for this guy, not because he's a psychopath, but just based on, you know, a, n- a number of, uh, you know, other traits. I used to get a lot of talks on dictators, like the mind and brains of dictators, if you could scan them and do their genetics, uh, to piece together those traits that you'd find in them. And I've, I've given lectures around the around the world on the brains, not only psychopaths and murderers, but also dictators, tyrants. And they all have a very similar sort of pattern of traits in, in, a, in, a, in a history. What are those traits? Well, there's a, a whole group of traits that line quite well with psychopathy. But then there's on top of them, there are certain ones that have that they have schadenfreude and they're, uh, they're, they're cruel, sadistic. But, you know, psychopaths, that's not, one, that's not a trait of psychopaths. But if you take a basic psychopathic pattern and add this sort of cruelty and schadenfreude and some of the sociopathic as opposed to the psychopathic uh, sorts of traits, and then you, uh, you know, they all have a healthy dose, a really healthy dose of narcissistic uh, uh, traits on top of that. And so there's a whole, um, you draw a Venn diagram of all these things related to Cluster B personality disorders, like narcissistic personality disorder, uh, ASPD, antisocial personality disorder, or which overlaps somewhat with psychopathy, but also histrionic and um, and, and borderline. And if you look at those, there is a core group of traits that they do share. In the past couple of years, I've done a lot on Putin, and we had a series of 13 films that just came out on the Soviet system, people can watch the trailer, go to Dow, D-A-U dot X-X-X, and they can see the trailer of this these 13 films we did on different ways people abuse each other and all that tyranny. And it's in part psychopathy and it's in part sociopathy, which are different. And in but there's other, you know, charming things like sadism added on top of some of these people. But there's a, a basic pattern. They, they have these traits. Uh, but every one I've ever looked at, every dictator except one, uh, had was either abandoned or abused between birth and three years old, just like you see in these uh, in psychopaths and, 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 and many murderers. Those are fundamental type one, you know, psychopaths, not sociopaths. Sociopaths don't have to have the genetics. Uh, they can be abused later, you know, bullied like when they're eight. And they're usually just really pissed off young losers getting even with the world, you know. Uh, but psychopaths, real primary psychopaths, will recruit sociopaths to pull the trigger to do the murders like happened, for example, in the the Beltway snipers. That was a pairing of a older psychopath with the sociopath uh, pulling the trigger and killing people. But the only one where we didn't – we had the history of them – so I went through all the histories of the you know, 5,000 years of dictators, and the only one that didn't was Pol Pot, uh, where he said he had a wonderful upbringing and everybody around him did. So that's one mystery. And he was pretty bad. And who knows if his writing of his own tale was correct? Of course. I mean, that's what, yeah. you know, that's what happens with a lot of these famous serial killers. They, they're constantly manipulating the public, the legal system, and they'll make up a thing like pornography made me do it. Uh, you know, they'll make up all sorts of things. It turns out to be a complete lie. And they all, all were, uh, came from pretty bad families and they're all abused or abandoned between birth and, and three years old. So although you have the 
possible predilections, the neurobiology, the genetics of psychopathology, you actually had a very warm, loving upbringing, which is what you contribute to the fact that you certainly are not an actual psychopath. Yeah, I mean, this surprised me because I was like a poster boy for genetics being the root of everything. And it turned out to be not quite that way. So I kind of had to eat some crow on this. And, and the, one of these psychiatrists who did a psychoanalysis uh, of me in his report, his summary report, he says, here's a guy, a patient, here's a patient uh, who has all the thoughts and drives and dreams and urges of a full-blown psychopath. He just never acts them out. One question was why? And while I was writing my book, The Psychopath Inside, I was do, did it in a a mountain village and it's really ancient house that my friend let me use for four months. I went up, typed up there. And while I was writing the book, the two papers came out that showed that you can have these warrior genes that are associated with high aggression and violence and in psychopaths. And, but a couple of them that are related to serotonin, the serotonin transporter, you can have the SLC variant. And that's one of the main, out of you know 15 or so so-called warrior genes, uh, but two of these that are related to it, which I have, if you're abused or abandoned, it's really bad news. But if you're treated well, it like negates all the other stuff, right? So here's we one of these bifurcating genetic epigenetic effects, really. So I was, you know, I and it was brought up so wonderfully. I really was, and I had a great family. And looking back over all the pictures from the time I was a kid. I was always laughing and being carried around by, you know, my father and my mother, my grandparents. And I had all these wonderful aunts. I had, just, you know, even though I hung out with my father and uncles and, I had, and my grandfathers, and you know, I love those guys. But my aunts were really something special, too. I mean, beyond that, because they're really very smart. And they treated every kid differently. They knew what everybody needed. It was just brilliant stuff. And so they knew, and my mother knew that I was a little off, so they made sure that I stayed busy constantly because like my mother told my teachers, don't let him be idle because something bad will happen if he's idle. So I spent <laughs> all through, you know, junior high school, high school and college. I just got into the, uh, the habit of always being involved in some really high active sport, like, you know, wrestling. I was in, in competitive wrestling, but also uh, football, tackle football, and track and field and competitive swimming. And then in the wintertime, my favorite sport was skiing. I was a downhill racer and, and raced in high school and college and went to some international events. So I loved the speed and all that stuff. So I loved all these high action kind of violent sports. And I kind of just blew it all out that way. I was too exhausted every night. And, and when, I, when I wasn't in sports, I was in, you know, in, playing a musical instrument or acting or in student government. I was always busy. And it's the way it's always been. But that's because my mother knew when I was going through puberty, they said something's wrong with him. And you, and he told, you know, and he said, keep him busy. And I've always been busy. And when I'm not busy, that's when I can be a rascal and, um, and worse. So th that was kind of the secret, you know, it was my the matriarchy, especially my mother, who was, you know, very close to also. But she, she treated us all great, but all different. You know what I mean? It was six of six kids. And this is a lot of work because we had active kids. And, uh, it's a ton of work. Uh, <laughs> I have one that's enough work. A handful because they're all, you know, to this day, very quirky. And so, it, and I could see, and then when I talked to my mother, I said, you really manipulated the whole thing. I said, well, yeah. She goes, she says, I'm manipulative too. But he says, I try to do it for the good of people. 
and not for the better people. And that's how I learned that from them. And our father was that way, too. I think from our parents on both sides were like that. They're involved in a lot of charities, but they did it quietly or they did it so that people never felt that there were charity cases. And this was, you know, that's a learning thing. I don't know if that's, that's not genetic, but we all learned that. So we were all, in spite of any of the psychopathic traits, always been very heavily involved in in charities to this day. Uh, and that's a funny thing about empathy. There's two main kinds of empathy. One is emotional empathy. The emotional empathy is that when you're happy, I'm happy. When you're sad, we, we cry together, we laugh together. That's the emotions move with each other. The other kind is cognitive empathy. So when you see somebody crying, you don't cry. Uh, you try to help them, though. And, and it turns out that people with this cognitive empathy uh, do more for charity than the people with emotional empathy. So the people who are always crying with you and everything, they rarely give money or do anything real. They, they, they do things real in the sense of they give emotional comfort. People with emotional empathy, they, they rarely give much money. But they talk, you know, it's like they talk it up. Now, what's... The interesting part of this is that people with psychopathy have cognitive empathy. So they can, in fact, lead double lives, empathic lives, in that they may do all these great things for you know, charities and donate their time, but at the same time, it might be a psychopathic killer or rapist. And it, it's not as contradictory as you'd think, because with these you know, with the people that they're preying on, they're predators, uh, that's firewalled uh, because they don't they don't connect emotionally with those people who are suffering in that way. Uh, but they may during the day and do a lot of work. So people always think it's like a screen. It's not necessarily a screen. So there's this weird thing about these kinds of empathy uh, in, in giving and the idea of who, who who can I find who will cry with me. And the chances are these are not people that are giving much money uh, or, 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 or their time. But they're so, probably so, not psychopaths. I'm sorry? But they're probably not psychopaths. No, so, no. Somebody who will know, cry with you. So very, you know, very low chance of being a psychopath if somebody's crying with you. Well, they they can. They can do it to, you know, to, you know, they could do it as a guise um, to, to win your, you know, your trust over. It's kind of the opposite of people on the, you know, with autism or Asperger's. They're exactly opposite. So they have emotional empathy, but they don't have cognitive empathy. They don't really have the theory of mind. What are you thinking, really? You can tell what you're feeling, but not how you're thinking. So they're kind of opposite things. But that doesn't mean that people with either thing have a disorder, because these are normal traits. You know, emotional empathy and cognitive empathy are, are, um, are, are normal traits. It's just when they're combined with other things that they become pernicious. And they're epigenetically triggered early on in life to be always the same way. They're not tempered by social context. That's where it's different. Your story is so fascinating because you're somebody who, you know, was had all these predispositions. You had a good upbringing. And so you're able to sidestep and avoid it. I wonder what through you we learn about our ability to, you know, change our fate, change the difficult things that go on inside of us. You know, there's always this hope. And this is something, uh, it's, a, it's an old idea from, you know, from, I guess, French humanism, that everybody's the same. We're tableau rasa, we're born pure, and then we're affected by family, but 
uh, also religion, by government. And so this is where the idea of tabula rasa, the blank slate, came from. And that has been a consistent sort of controlling idea uh, from Aristotle on forward, Avicenna, Aristotle, and a whole group of philosophers and all the way through, especially in the 20th century, uh, post-World War II. And it's dominated all of our humanities and social sciences and psychology is this idea of tabula rasa. Uh, opposing this idea was one that Plato came up with and also supported by Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes. You know, So there's like, nobody was thinking this way, that you're born with a whole set of moral codes that's genetically wired. They didn't, you know, Plato didn't say genetics, but this is, it was an internal thing. You're kind of born with these programs, these very essential programs. Well, over the past 10 years of 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 new biological psychiatry and studies of personality disorders and you know different studies of morality and ethics we now know that plato is correct and everybody else has been wrong so you know people are bo not born with a blank slate and so there are some kids that are genetically wired to be very resilient and you know these people fall down the stairs when they're two years old they get up laughing you can't get to them and whether other people are very susceptible. So it's not everybody susceptible. If you have the susceptibility genes for these personality disorders and you are, you know, uh, abandoned or abused between birth and three, this is the, the deadly combination of epigenetics. But outside of that, it's maybe only 25% of the people are affected by this because they're genetically wired and then they're triggered with this. But in most people, it's temporary. Uh, so that's why we have people with real personality disorders like psychopathy, primary psychopathy. And it's pretty permanent because those systems are pretty hardwired. They're myelinated systems that connect the uh, these areas of the social brain, and the limbic system. And they're not like these other plastic systems when people say, well, the brain is plastic. Well, they're mostly talking about the monoamine systems, which is what are owned by the drug companies is where all the money the is MEOs, made. Yep. And so what you're doing is these plastic systems, which are always plastic, are dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, epinephrine, histamine. And, and these are what are plastic. But these other hard, those are unmyelinated. There's no coding on those, those axons. So they, they make connections. They pop off. They're always moving around. But the other things that are the basis of real personality traits and when it goes wrong, these are hardwired systems. They're hardwired early, different stages of development in the orbital cortex and that connection with the amygdala. Um, and I had looked with fMRIs or just MRIs, not fMRIs, of, of infants. And you can see this thing developing very early. You use diffusion tensor imaging to look at you know premyelination, early myelination. But these are developing from birth to three. And once they're myelinated, you're it. That's it. So the idea people will say all the time, I can change. You know, people can change. Well, you can change temporarily. There are people who can fight it because every day they can fight an addiction or fight a behavior. But every day they got to think about it. And once they don't, they snap right back to, to their, their wiring. So there are, you know, you look at a long-term meditator, for example, and you see real changes in the brain. You see changes in the prefrontal cortex. You see downregulation of the amygdala. You even see a decrease in size of the amygdala. You know, there's an indication that a practice like that, when done regularly, makes real change in the brain. And you see the corollary behavioral changes and personality changes in the individual, the way they act, the way they react, the way they think and they feel. Yeah. I mean, people can do it. They can say, I'm going to change 
myself or I have a therapist are going to change. And they will change for days, weeks, months, even a few years. Rarely I've ever seen somebody permanently really uh, that change their behavior unless they're doing something every day to concentrate on it. And unless you keep at it, they all, they all seem to snap back. It's not something you can just fix. And hence the need to meditate every day, to literally oh, yeah. concentrate you, you every really day. have to do something every day, and that way you can uh, concentrate. So in many ways, all those different modalities can work if you can stay with it. But a lot of people, uh, they have to change their whole life in that sense, right? Obviously, the psychopathology angle is really interesting because as somebody who meditates, what you're thinking about is how do I quiet my mind, gain control of my mind, create a more peaceful mind and universe through this practice. And here we have this characterization, which is entirely the opposite of what we're going for. And, you know, is, is that something, obviously you, you had these predilections and you were able to use all of the positive constructs that we understand, you know, love and support, um, to tame your own mind unwittingly. Um, so I think, I, I, I think, um, well, I, I mean, I can just tell you my experiences that are probably related somewhat to meditation and, and mind quieting and, and such things. When I was doing my postdoctoral research at U University of California, San Diego, uh, Reginald Bickford was a, he studied all these gurus and yogis and, and was in you know, meditation and did a lot of qu quantitative EEG at the time. That was, that was years ago, but he was like, um, really quite into the neurobiology of meditation. So he brought all these yogis in uh, from all over the world and tested them. And he was right down the hall from us. I, did, I only knew him because the labs, our labs were next to each other and I wasn't doing any work like that. But his postdoc uh, came t down to my office. They said, they're almost done with the study and they needed some negative controls. <laughs> what do you mean? They said, well, meditation is about, you know, quieting the mind and all this. And, and he said, and it goes with certain behaviors and activities that we associate with it. And he said, you're the opposite. He says, so we need you as a negative control. He said, you're a partier, you, you smoke, you drink, you go crazy, you're hypomanic, uh, a party guy. You're the opposite of <laughs> what we're looking for. So anyway, they wired me up for a couple of days. I went into a kind of an isolation tank, you know, it was a Faraday cage. It was all you know, completely sound isolated. And I went in there for a couple of days and laid there and, and they said, open your eyes, close your eyes, do all this. Uh, imagine you're doing this and that. And, and so I went back there and they had, had, you know, printouts of my EEG. So they had the, um, you know, they looked at alpha and beta gamma, but they're focused mostly on alpha at the time for those correlates. And they said that you're, you said your alpha is 10 times the voltage of anybody we've ever had. And so, so we've had people in from yogis in from India and, you know, Tibet and these and, and you know, like Tibetan masters and masters and all this stuff. And he says, you just have that uh, naturally. He said, when you close your eyes, he said, do you meditate? I said, no, I have no idea what meditation is. He says, you meditate so often you don't know it because when you, when you close your eyes, you're gone, man. He says, you're meditating when you blink almost. That alpha block. <laughs> huh? The alpha block. When you close your eyes and your alpha go up, that goes up. That's called the alpha yeah, block. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And it was, <clears throat> so what usually happens is I start to 
be enveloped by a, a, a light. I can do that right now if I wanted to. It's something I, I think uh, I, I started again. It's my first memory every night when I close my eyes. I, I saw this kind of sh silver blue shimmering light in, in my in my my eyes were closed. It was kind of vibrating, and then over the period of about I would say forty five seconds or so, it would start to condense into this really intense blue white light and then as soon as it did it got there it would then come zapping right and hit me right here and it would go ping and it was all i could think of at the time because i always remember it as being it seemed like it was extraordinary weight you would say like it's an infinite mass but it was light as a feather and every night when i went to sleep many times that's what i do and it would happen automatically when i closed my eyes so this was a very common experience to me. And they said, well, that's, so you're really kind of meditating there. And then when I had it done by, you know, Dr. Jin, Yi Jin, uh, who was a psychiatrist, you know him well, uh, when he did it, he, 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 he said that all of your, your alpha is focused at one frequency. It's a point frequency. It's very, very high voltage and it's a point. And so it's like a com completely coherent uh, and it's spread over your, almost your entire brain. So when he mapped it out, uh, then he did my wife and our kids and our kids had the exact same thing as me. And the only difference in our EEGs is that my son and I were both left-handed. So there's one spot, the premotor and motor cortex that's opposite to our daughter and she's right-handed. So it really is kind of internal consistency with it. And so my experience with EEG is is that, and it's but it's uh, associated with something very you know, primitive that I don't control. Well, I can control it. I, all I got to do is say, okay, I'm going to close my eyes, and when I close my eyes, it magically I happens. Fly, flying around, and it just it, it'll automatically happen. So I can I can control it. My my daughter, my son, and I don't know what we're doing, but it just happens automatically. And we've been told that it's like you know you immediately start meditating when you just almost blink. Yeah. I wonder if somebody put you into an MRI and looked at your default mode network, if that would also be downregulated, because there's a bunch of different neural correlates of meditation. We did PET scanning on and off with and without a, uh, a task, and you could see the default mode. Mine is, is, is very, um, uh, very much focused on the precuneus, you know, the medial occipital parietal cortex, a very intense signal. Uh, but then uh, also with the dorsal prefrontal cortex. So if you look at it, I have very little activity, both at rest and in activation with those stimuli that have to do with um, emotional empathy or showing me like really awful pictures. I just know there's almost no response. But what I have, so I have my whole ventral cortical limbic system is turned off, the orbital cortex, ventromedial cortex, anterior cingulate, as well as, spot, as spots in the amygdala. So that sort of pattern, which is uh, no activity ventrally in my dorsal system, that is this, the, the uh, dorsal cortical cortical system extends from occipital, parietal, parietal, premotor, prefrontal, that whole area is like really turned on. And it, it and it has to do, you know, it's associated with executive function and being in the here and now, and it's that way in my kids too. Mine is like really completely turned on, while the whole ventral system is is really turned off. 
So it's a mind's pathological. Theirs is not pathological that way. That's where we differ. They have a sort of a normal limbic system activation and default, but I don't. That's where we separate. To to fight that, you fight it your whole life, and it can be beaten, but you better have something every day where you're constantly, you know, you're doing that. Uh, I mean, the way I have to fight it is I have I go through a whole procedure to improve my behavior with other people. So I have a method that I have to do and remind myself. I have to cognitively, explicitly say I am now going to do this. I'm going to now be a nice person. And how do you uh, do that? What's your method? And so what I did was I started with my wife and I said, well, I have to look at every behavior. So I started looking at uh, people in my position, guys my age who have kids and, and then grandkids, and see what they actually did when people weren't watching. And I studied them for about a month, all my different fr- people I know, and I knew their behaviors in detail. And I really started to notice that when people weren't watching, they were really sacrificing themselves for people, not just their wife and their kids, but other people too. And, and, and it's something I wouldn't naturally do, you know? And so I said, aha. So in dealing, so every day I would a start and wake up with my wife and I do little things that good roommates do, good friends do. You know, I would, you know, make the breakfast. I'd wash up after myself, pour her wine first, you know, all these very little things. And then larger things that people uh, will do. Um, you know, you, you're supposed to go to funerals of your wife's family, some of your family dies, you're not supposed to make up an excuse and say, I can't do that. And then go down to a beach bar all day instead of going to, the, you know, which I would do. So I was doing these things, not to hurt somebody, but I'd blow things off. Well, I started doing all those things. And, and, and I've tried to do that. And after about a couple of months, she goes, what has come over you? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you're really like a really nice guy now. Not just a fun, interesting guy, but a nice, really good guy. Finally and acting said, like a mensch. Uh, yeah, like a mensch, like a regular, but a way that wasn't going out of my way, but what I thought was normative behavior for normal, like a regular good guy. And so, but I have to ask myself, what would a good guy do in this circumstance? And, and I was doing that 30 times a day and I, I was doing selfish things every time. So in fighting that, uh, what I found it is very hard to be a good guy, you know, really, and like a like a mensch. This first thing, and the second thing is, I was started to sleep longer and longer because it was just exhausting. So it was like really hard and exhausting to be a good guy. And now I, you know, I know I'm still doing it because I'm sleeping longer. Uh, to me, you know, uh, we, we've done a lot of sleep studies, so not fair amount of sleep. Um, but I, it's exhausting being a good guy and, and a good person. You know what I mean? A thoughtful person. Because I'm not naturally wired that way. It's this group of traits. It's called fearless dominance. It's when you walk through the room and you get that light around you. People interpret this as charisma. And this is what psychopaths have. There are some psychopaths that have just negative traits and they're just complete jerks. Everybody hates them. Uh, but these positive ones, they get away with anything. And we vote them into all sorts of uh, powers, position of power, and they seduce people constantly. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's like you see a lot of that. It's like run the other way. But what we've learned from you is that it's actually possible to change your behavior. So I think this is a fascinating lesson for everybody. 
Um, because most of us don't actually stop to analyze our own behavior and say, hey, am I doing the right thing? What would a really good person do right now? Because we just all sort of assume we're good people. So, you know, there's a fascinating lesson to learn about positive social interaction from a potential psychopath. Yeah, just takes daily work. (laughs) (laughs) This was an incredible interview. Thank you very, very much. Well, good talking to you again, and I hope this works. (laughs) This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Lots of fun. Have a great night. Okay, you too. Bye, Eric. Bye. That was Dr. Jim Fallon, potential psychopath turned good guy. If you want to learn more, you can pick up his fascinating book, The Psychopath Inside. If you'd like to hear the full conversation and watch the full video, you can see it at arielgarten.com. And, talk of psychopathology aside, switching gears here for the rest of us, if you've been trying to make meditation a daily habit, you can check out Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. Gives you real-time feedback during your meditation to help you do it more effectively, and tracks your meditation so you can see your improvement day in and day out and stick with the habit. You can find out more at choosemuse.com and use the discount code UNTANGLE15. Till next week, when Patricia will be back with more Untangle.